Hi, Journey. How y'all doing today? Really, really good to be with you, especially if you're our guest. We're talking about this perception that God does indeed behave badly. We're in this series called God Behaving Badly. It's taken from a book by that same title written by a guy named Dr. David T. Lamb. Today we're asking and hopefully answering the question, is God sexist or is he affirming? Is God sexist or is he affirming? And plenty of atheists, plenty of secular feminists think unequivocally that God and the Bible are indeed sexist. They believe that God and the Bible are responsible for the loathing of women for the last couple thousand years. Just a couple of quotes from women about their view of God's treatment of women. Any honest thinking person reading through the Bible cannot ignore the blatant misogyny and barbarity toward women. Strong statement, right? How about this one? The place where God's absurdity becomes completely clear is when you look at God's sexism. And lots of Christians have heard those responses and they've answered those criticisms uh, with responses like this. Maybe you've said something like this before. The charge of sexism in the Bible is based upon a lack of knowledge of Scripture. There's one answer. Here's another one that someone said. The Bible gives us a lot of proof that God is not sexist. Maybe some here have said that line. How about this one? The Bible does not condone discrimination in any manner. And you hear those answers, and they sound just okay, don't they? But they still leave the question unanswered. Is God, and in particular, the God of the Old Testament, is he sexist or is he not? Now, I'm going to tip my cards real early here, and I'm going to tell you, I do not believe that the God of the Bible is sexist. But I also don't think that's enough to just settle the matter because there are countless texts in the Old Testament in particular that cause God to appear to be sexist. And let's be really, really honest together. Sexism isn't just an issue in the Bible. It's also an issue that's alive and well in the church, the big C church of Jesus Christ. For example, noted author Anne Rice, maybe you know of her, she talked in the summer of 2010 and said, I can't even consider myself a Christian anymore. Someone said, well, why? Well, because of the sexism in the church. Whoa. And that's a tragedy, isn't it? And how many other Christian women also feel overlooked, slighted, and disempowered within the church? And that is tragic, especially in light of this truth that we see again and again throughout the scripture that Yahweh, God, and Jesus are both highly affirming of women. And so let's start in the most natural place for this conversation, which is, well, in the beginning. And to start, I'm going to ask for you just to popcorn out for me the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the words Genesis and the first woman. I'm going to open up my great big magnum marker up here, and I'm going to ask you to audience feedback time. What's the first thing that comes to mind when I say Genesis and the first woman? Ready, set, go. Eve, okay. Whoa, whoa what's happened here? Hmm. Can't write on a dirty piece of paper. Eve, what else comes to mind? Rib. Ouch. What else comes to mind? Helper. Apple. Ah, what else? Snake. Someone said marriage. Marriage. What else? Partner. What else? Si oh, sin. 
One more. Garden. There you go. That's a pretty good list. You guys did better than most. Most people, when you ask them that question, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the words Genesis and first woman? They go negative immediately, and the only thing they talk about is stuff like sin and apple and snake and so on and so forth. You guys mixed it up. Well done. You're better than most. Because most Christians automatically, when they hear those words, Genesis and first woman, they go immediately to Genesis chapter 3, and they start thinking about the temptation and the fall, and Eve blew it, and come on. But... We're introduced to the first woman way earlier in the scriptures than just Genesis chapter 3, right? And granted, the portrayal of the woman in Genesis 3 is negative, but there's also Genesis 1 and 2 that comes before Genesis 3 that are way more favorable toward women. As a matter of fact, the very first thing the Bible says about women is incredibly positive. You would be hard-pressed to find anything more positive than the Bible's first words about women in the scripture, and it's this line right here. Women are made in the image of God. Whoa. That's the very first thing the Bible ever says about women. And that is incredibly positive, isn't it? Let's look at it together in the text. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, all the animals that scurry along the ground. No fewer than four times in that text, we see that human beings, both men and women, are created in God's image, in God's likeness. And the repetition again and again and again in that text of that concept communicates the importance of the idea that people, all people, women and men alike, are indeed created in God's image. And God wants to hammer that home for us. The very first thing the scripture speaks to about women is telling us that they are like him. Women are like him. Another way to say it is like this. Women are Godlike. Women are godlike. Now, men, we're godlike too. Most of us, though, we already think that. Right? And women being godlike means that they were created by Him to be a reflection of everything that He is to the world. Not to mention a reflection of His glory to the world. God's view then is that women. Well, you're divine. God's view of you women is that you are divine. Now, there's some people, though, who prefer to argue that since women were created second after the man, that she is therefore inferior to the man. Well, now that sounds sexist, doesn't it? So let's turn over and look at the creation of woman and see how the second gender is actually portrayed by God in Genesis chapter 2. Started in Genesis chapter 1, turn the page, Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals, all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. Cool assignment, by the way. 
He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, all the wild animals. But still, there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs, ouch, and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from just the rib, made a whole woman. And he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone, flesh from my flesh. She will be called Woe Man. Right? Or woman, you can say it either way. Because she was taken from man. So Yahweh makes the first man. He makes the first woman. Now go with me here. Go with me. Let's use a writing analogy. Man was the first draft. Woman was the second draft. And well, what do you know about second drafts? They're typically what? That's exactly right. Typically better than the first draft, which would mean that we could argue that woman, the second draft, was then an improvement on the man, the first draft. Now, right now, some of you inside, you're pushing back majorly against that. And you're saying, like, you can't argue that, Brian. Thin, theological. But wait a second. If I ask you to tell me which one's more important, the Old Testament or the New Testament, what are most of you going to say? Yeah, you did it right then. You're going to say the New Testament is more important, Right? The New Testament, like survey says, if you survey most Christians, they'll say the most important part of the Bible is the New Testament because you got Jesus in there and whoa, it's more important. It's better, it's superior, it came second. And in a way, Genesis 1 supports this concept. Human beings, after all, were created last, right? On the sixth day, after God had created everything else, plants, animals, sun, moon, etc., we then, human beings, were the crown jewel, the pinnacle of his creation. So... Can we say that women are superior to men because they were created later? Can we say that? No. Sorry. We can't actually say that. I do not think it's accurate to argue for the superiority of women just because they, like the New Testament, were created second. But just like I don't believe the argument for their inferiority based on Genesis chapter 2 is valid. Can't do it. Can't do it. There's another common accusation of sexism that gets levied against God in the Bible, and it's his description. You probably caught it in that text. You see it right over here. It's the description of woman as helper, right? Any of you ladies hate that description? You don't have to raise your hand. So you did, right? To many, it sounds like man in the mold of traditional businessman, well, he needed a secretary, right? So God creates this divinely appointed helper to be like a servant or like a slave to help him in his very, very important task, cooking his meals, ironing his shirts, bringing his slippers, his newspaper to him at the end of a long, hard work day, right? Which, in case you didn't realize it, sounds incredibly sexist. Until you look at the Hebrew meaning of that word, helper. And the Hebrew of that English word, helper, is this little word, ezer, E-Z-E-R. That's the word that's translated helper in English. And when you look at how that little Hebrew word ezer is used all over the place in the Old Testament, you know who the one doing the helping is all throughout the Old Testament? Who's ezering people? 
It's God. God himself is the one who again and again and again and again is being an easer to his people. With just a single exception, every time the word easer is used in the first five books of the Old Testament, God is the helper. Let me show you just one place in Deuteronomy. Here's what it looks like. Moses said this about the tribe of Judah. Oh Lord, it's like this prayer. Hear the cry of your tribe of Judah. Bring them together as a people. Give them strength to defend their cause. Easer them, help them against their enemies. Who's he talking to there? God. Help them against their enemies. There is no, we're skipping to verse 26 now. There is no one like the God of Israel. He rides across the heavens to easer you, help you across the skies in majestic splendor. So you see, instead of woman being a subservient little helper in an inferior little position, God creates a human being, a woman, in Genesis 2 who does what? Acts like God for the man. Acts like God for the man. She helps him, yes, but she is his easer. And once again, in the scriptures, we see that women are godlike. You're not inferior. You're godlike. Okay, so there's Genesis 1. There's Genesis 2. So, so far in our little journey here, we should together be saying, God, it seems, is casting women in a highly favorable light, isn't he? Even shockingly progressive for the ancient Near East thousands of years ago, as a matter of fact. There doesn't seem to be much sexist about God thus far does there? So now we've been to Genesis 1, Genesis 2. Now where are we going to go? We're going to go to Genesis chapter 3. Here it is. Starting in verse 1. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, this is the serpent, did God really say you must not eat fruit, the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it, for if you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. Now honestly, that story makes woman look bad, right? It's actually about the worst thing that you could imagine anyone doing, and Genesis 3 is not in any way sexist. It's just not. Now had the woman been portrayed negatively and the man been portrayed positively, then maybe you could argue that Genesis 3 is sexist. Maybe you could argue that Genesis chapter 3 sets a precedent for biblical sexism. But what do you see in Genesis chapter 3? When I read it, I see that the man is equally as bad in Genesis 3 as the woman. And maybe the guy's sin, Adam's sin, is even worse. How so, you ask? Well, first of all, the man ate the fruit, did you notice? But he didn't even resist. He didn't even try to resist. He was completely and totally, utterly passive. We think that this is the very first Biblical case of what we like to call around here PMS, passive male syndrome, right? 
The guy didn't even say a word. He said, sure, food looks good. Thank you, dear. I'll take it. Didn't even say a word. And then did you also notice that Adam was with the woman? Adam was with Eve when she ate the fruit, and he didn't do anything to try to stop her from eating it. You see that? That's actually in the Bible, and it is an oft-overlooked little piece of data when many, many people talk about this text. You notice that when the serpent speaks in Genesis chapter 3, he, Genesis, yeah, Genesis 3, he uses the second person plural form. That'd be like saying, you all, which seems to provide even further evidence that the man wasn't off somewhere else in the garden tending to the trees over there, but rather was right here present with the woman for that entire scene, which when you look at it, it makes a lot of sense, right? You get to the bottom of Genesis chapter 2, and what are the man and woman doing? In case you don't remember, they're clinging to each other as one flesh. If you have no idea what that means, ask your mom and dad when we're all done in here. That'll be an awesome lunchtime conversation. They're clinging to each other as one flesh. They're naked, right? That should give a clue. And it's really likely then at the very beginning of Genesis chapter 3 that they'd still be close together because, well, when husbands and wives are naked, they're usually pretty close together, right? We think Adam was there, standing right there with his wife. And the Apostle Paul, who many have accused quite unfairly of being the most sexist man in the whole of Scripture, you notice something about what he says about that whole Adam-Eve garden scene. It's in Romans chapter 5. Look at what he says. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Oh, Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. I don't see her name anywhere in there. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Honestly, neither one, man or woman, is more at fault. They both sin. They both look bad in Genesis chapter 3, which then is a very difficult basis upon which to make an accusation of sexism against God and against the scripture. And then you just step back and you take like a 40,000 foot view of the whole, especially of the Old Testament, and you see that with the blessing of Yahweh, women accomplished some amazing things in the Old Testament world. Still, to this very day, most of the progressive democracies of the world have not yet been led by a woman. But Yahweh selected a female president, Deborah, Judges chapter 4, over 3,000 years ago. Whoa. Shockingly. Progressive. And get this, not only was Deborah the political leader of Israel, but as the prophet of Yahweh, she was also the spiritual leader as well. She was like president and pope combined into one person, really big hat. Deborah, as a matter of fact, composed a poem that's recorded in the scriptures. She, president and pope like, composed a poem that's recorded on the pages of scripture. Whoa. A woman named Hannah recorded a poem that's captured on the pages of Scripture. Mary, the mother of Jesus, wrote a poem that's recorded 
chronicled on the pages of Scripture. And so here's, here's a good question. If it's okay for women to compose sections of the Bible, why wouldn't we allow them to teach the Bible to any audience? Seems like a fair question. God affirms women again and again and again. God affirms women, and so does Jesus Christ. In Jesus' day, see, men didn't even talk to women in public. But Christ, he took women seriously again and again and again. He interacted with women. He told stories in which women were the heroes. He effusively affirmed women. And you notice something about Jesus as you read the Gospels. We're together as a church reading through the entire New Testament in 2014. Y'all caught up? Yeah. Heard some of you pucker for just a moment there. You're like, ah, I forgot. But as you're cruising along through the Gospels, you notice something about Jesus, and it's this. He doesn't affirm people very often. Do you notice that? He's not the most encouraging, affirming person you'll run across in this world. As a matter of fact, he rebukes people way more than he affirms them, actually. So anytime we see Christ take the time to affirm somebody, we know, oh, this is a big deal. For example, there's a story in Luke chapter 10, a woman named Martha, she's taking the traditional woman's role. What's Martha doing? Where is she working? In the, she's in the kitchen, right? But what's Jesus do? He affirms Mary, who was doing what? Acting like a man and sitting at Jesus' feet, learning from the Messiah. Whoa. Mark chapter 12, rich people were dumping big piles of cash into the temple coffers. And what's Jesus do? He affirms a poor widow who gave everything that she had, two little copper coins. Whoa. And then there's the story of the person who Jesus affirms the very most of any person in any of the Gospels. Mark chapter 14. Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. While he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard. She broke open the jar, didn't just pour it out, she broke open the jar and poured the perfume over his head. Some of those at the table were indignant. Why waste such expensive perfume, they asked. It could have been sold for a year's wages and then the money given to the poor. So they scolded her harshly. But Jesus replied, leave her alone. Leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you, and you can help them whenever you want to. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could and has anointed my body for burial ahead of time. I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. We don't even know her name. But whoever she was, she dumped an ointment worth, get this, $30,000 in today's currency. She dumps it over Jesus' head, doesn't just pour it out. She breaks the jar open and pours it out over Jesus' head. Whoa. And when you consider what everyone else was doing to Jesus at that time, her behavior gets even more shocking. What are the chief priests busy doing at that time in history? Well, they're trying to kill him. They're trying to kill Jesus. Judas, one of his own disciples, what's he doing at that point in history? He's plotting to betray him, plotting to sell him out. 
The disciples, what are they getting ready to do? Getting ready to desert him. Peter, what's he about to do? He's about to deny Jesus entirely. No, I don't even know that guy. No idea who he is. And so you see, everyone else around Jesus was hurting or was about to hurt Jesus. And here this woman is breaking open this jar and blessing Jesus. Whoa. And that woman, she understood stuff that the disciples who had been with Jesus for some period of time that they just didn't get. She understood that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus was the anointed one. So what'd she do? She anoints him. And the disciples, they're all sitting back and they're thinking, well, the anointed one doesn't need to be anointed. That's expensive. And so they rebuke her for anointing him and notice she doesn't say anything. And so Jesus steps in and he defends her and he rebukes them for rebuking her. Knock it off, he says. Because to Jesus, her actions are beautiful. Her actions are appropriate. They were not wasteful. They were not inappropriate. Beautiful and appropriate, very appropriate. Jesus also makes mention that that woman, she knew what was coming for Christ. She knew that Jesus was about to die on the cross for us. Which is why she was doing what she was doing, preparing his body for burial. And again and again and again, we see the disciples struggling to comprehend the reality that Jesus' path was headed to the cross, headed to death on the cross. This woman, though, she had it all figured out. And Jesus declared that day to the men who followed him that that woman's deed would be immortalized right alongside the gospel. He very accurately predicted that she would be affirmed the world over for her act. And not only was her act extravagant, but no other person in the Gospels receives that level of praise from Jesus. No one else. The disciples of Jesus, it seems, they, they just didn't get it. They didn't understand that Jesus, just like Yahweh, affirmed women. And really, really unfortunately, many disciples of Jesus Christ today, some of us still have that very same problem. Instead of following Jesus' example of praising women who want to serve, many churches, many Christians are more often like the sexist disciples, rebuking women who take initiative. She shouldn't be doing that. And so, Journey, I hope the question that we're asking together is, what, what can we do? In particular, men, what can we do? Here's one thing. We can listen to women and learn about God from them. We can listen to women and learn about God from them. What's the very first thing the Bible says about women? They're created in the image of God. Men, we can listen to women and we can learn about God from them. We should be studying about and learning from godly women not only in the Bible but in modern day here now. Men, we should read more female authors for crying out loud. It's a funny deal that women are real easy to read male authors, but lots and lots of men tend to avoid female authors. Think about this one. King David, who's one of the mightiest men in all of Scripture, 
He did not think in any way that his masculinity was compromised by listening to and learning from a woman. David was a mighty warrior, tough as nails. Yet he listened to and learned from a woman on more than one occasion, as a matter of fact. We can and should listen to women and learn about God from them. I think about the women in my spiritual heritage who are formative in the follower of Jesus Christ I am today, starting with my mom, a godly woman who came to Christ when I was like this big and then started teaching me about what it means to be a Christian and follow Jesus and so. My Sunday school teacher, Lila, who when I was in kindergarten, helped me pray to receive Christ into my life, yield my heart and life to Jesus Christ in my Sunday school class. Lila is in her 80s today, and we're friends on Facebook to this very day. Seriously. Lila's mom lived to like 102, 103 years old, and in her 90s was jumping out of airplanes still, and so Lila's got a lot of years left ahead of her. I think about this woman named Sharon who lived around the corner from my family growing up, and she would see me out in the neighborhood, and she was, I don't know why, just moved to pray for me. She barely knew me, but she was always praying for Brian Hopkins, maybe because she thought I was hell on wheels or something. I'm not sure. But Sharon just prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. She loves to tell me every time I'm in contact with Sharon, she tells me how she still prays for me to this very day. My wife, good heavens, my wife, who helps me be the very best follower of Jesus Christ. She calls me on the carpet. Whoa, jeez. Men, we should listen to women. And we should learn about God from them. Second thing that we should do, men, is affirm women whenever possible. And not just when they cook a good meal, please. Please. This is way, way, way bigger than that. Men, we gotta be about affirming women whenever possible. For crying out loud, God did, Jesus did, and so should we. I just, by the way, fulfilled Jesus' prophecy about the woman who anointed Jesus with perfume. Jesus said people are gonna be talking about this thousands of years from right now. I just fulfilled that prophecy. You can fulfill that prophecy as well. Maybe, guys, for you, it starts with baby steps. It starts with speaking positively about women, right? Like, like start there. Speak positively about women, especially men. If you're married, speak positively about your wife. Don't run her into the ground. Stop running her into the ground. Stop. Now, I don't always do that perfectly, but I'm really, I try really hard to be conscious of it. Because church, we're charged, men, we're charged with following the example of God and Jesus in their affirmation of women and it goes way, way beyond like, nice meal, dear, thanks. Way beyond. In our culture and even today in the church of Jesus Christ, what's true is that men are atop the totem pole. And what's Jesus say about being atop the totem pole? He says, you know what? You know how you demonstrate true greatness? What do you do? You serve. You serve others. You lift others up 
just like he modeled for us. You want to be great in the kingdom of God. You want to be atop the totem pole in the kingdom of God. You serve. You lift others up. And men, what if? What if more and more of us started talking more and more about God's affirmation of women? What if we just started doing that today? And what if as a result, more and more of our culture started to realize that God isn't actually sexist and is actually quite affirming and even quite progressive in his view of women? And what if at the end of the day, more and more women who maybe have been victims of sexism begin to see God not only as the one who created them in his image, but also as the one who longs to be in relationship with them. That's the end game. That's what it's all about. Listen to and learn about God from women. Affirm women. Whenever possible, affirm women. Because when you do, you're pointing people back to God and how great he is and how not sexist he is. Let's be about it. Take your stuff and set it aside if you would. I invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads. care whether you're a woman, whether you're a man, whether you're a child, it doesn't matter. Because what's true beyond the shadow of any doubt is that Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Jesus affirms you. And Jesus loves you so much, he affirms you so much that he went to the cross and he died to take upon himself the consequences of your and my sin. All that junk that was introduced into humanity in Genesis chapter three, he took every single bit of it. And he paid for it all with his very life. And he did it because he loves you that much. He wants to be in relationship with you that much. And maybe there's some here today who are coming alive to the truth that Jesus is inviting you into life with him right here, right now. That Jesus is inviting you to life with him, life that was only made possible by his death, his burial, his resurrection right now. Maybe there's some who are coming alive right now to this truth that Jesus' invitation to salvation and forgiveness stands wide open right now. Once and for all salvation, once and for all forgiveness. You don't have to wonder. You can be assured. And if that's you, you can right now trust Christ with your everything. 
and you can step across the line of faith in Jesus Christ by praying with me right now. I invite you to pray. Jesus, yes, I am a sinner. And Jesus, I realize that I am utterly incapable of saving myself. And so Christ, with all the faith I can muster, I gratefully receive your gift of salvation. You are, Jesus, everything I need. Here's my life. Here's my heart. Here's my soul. Here's my everything. I trust you, Jesus. And I thank you. Thank you so much for dying on the cross in my place. Thanks for taking my sin and my shame and my guilt and my everything. And thank you. Thank you for abundant life here and now and thank you for eternal life in heaven someday. Thank you, Jesus. And if you're someone who's stepping into the saving faith of Jesus Christ today, that's the single biggest deal in your whole life. It's such a big deal that around here, we like to acknowledge when people step across that line of faith in Christ. And this is a private moment. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed, nobody's looking around. But if you prayed with me just then to give your heart and life to Jesus, would you just right now slip your hand up and lock eyes with me? You can do that right now. Let me stand with you, let me affirm your decision. Yes, in the back, yeah, way to go, man. Way to go, and over here, yes, you too, sir, yes. Way to go. And yeah, I see, yeah, yes. Way to go, buddy. And you too, yes, and you too, yes. And you too, right, yeah, absolutely. Way to go, yes. Jesus, we're so grateful for these who are stepping into faith in you today. We celebrate with you, we celebrate with the angels in heaven, all that you're doing in these lives here today. All of us, frankly, God, you're working, you're on the move, you're stirring. You're recalibrating our hearts more and more and more toward you. Jesus, I pray for us that it would be all about your glory, your fame being lifted higher with every single thing in our lives. Especially, Jesus, as we talk about how we think about and how we treat women. God, that our affirmation of women would mirror your affirmation of women. And that our affirmation of women would bring you glory, God. The charges of sexism would be broken down, Jesus, because people see how we love and treat each other as your community, as your church, Jesus. That people would see your heart for all people that they would capture the essence of the Imago Dei your image set inside of us through the way that we hold each other in the highest regard Jesus 
May people see you when they see us. Men, women, rich, poor, different colors of skin, it doesn't matter. May the world see you when they see us, Jesus. And may that bring you ultimate glory, God.